This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. And strap yourself in because this is going to be fascinating. Charity Dean is the protagonist of Michael Lewis's new book, The Premonition. She's also, I'm going to give her a promotion, the head of uh, public health of the California Public Health Department, as well as the co-founder of the public health company. And if you are at all interested in how infectious disease spreads, what we're doing right and wrong uh, with vaccinations and containing COVID and what the risks are that we're looking at from our current circumstances, including the very dangerous Delta variant, you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Charity Dean. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Dr. Charity Dean. She was the Deputy Public Health Officer for the Santa Barbara County Public Health Department before becoming Assistant Director at the California Department of Public Health in 2020. Michael Lewis called her one of the few people who saw the real danger of the COVID virus before the rest of the country did, and she was featured as one of the main characters in his book, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story. She is co-founder of the public health company, Charity Dean. Welcome to Bloomberg. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I loved uh, the book. I mean, I love everything Michael Lewis writes, but the book was especially interesting. But I want to roll back and start um, with your background, tell us what a public health officer is and how did you become one? Well, a public health officer is the local official for a county or a local jurisdiction who is responsible for ensuring that the public is safe against a host of different types of threats. My favorite threat, of course, is communicable disease control. But there's a number of things they do. They oversee restaurant inspections or water safety. I think the thing they're best known for, though, really is disease threats. Because in the U.S., public health officers sprung up across the U.S. in response to local needs. You know, if we rewind 100 years, that might have been tuberculosis or smallpox or cholera, polio, etc. So today, the local public health officers are largely unknown to the general public, uh, but their role is really important. And in the book, The Premonition, we learn that the local public health officers have a lot of authority. They can shut down doctors if they're a source of um, malpractice or a source of infection, or in fact, there's some really fascinating stories. People kind of push back and say, you can't do that, and the answer seems to be, Watch me. (laughs) Well, I learned that on the fly. When I became uh, the health officer for Santa Barbara County, the thing that intrigued me the most is called layered jurisdictional authority. And what that means is the police powers to enforce communicable disease control in California sit with the local health officer. In some states, they sit with the state health officer, but in California, it's with the local county public health officer. And the law actually says that they can take whatever measures are necessary to control the spread of disease. And that's an incredible amount of police power authority. And it's a huge responsibility. So 
really it's the job of the local public health officer across the United States to protect national security, health security. And now after COVID, we know even the outcome of the local economy is impacted by the decisions they make. Hmm. Quite, Quite interesting. What was your early experiences with infectious diseases? How did you gravitate in that direction? You know, I was always interested in outbreaks, even as a child. I was interested in pandemics. Um, As a child? As a child. I was interested in the really awful, gnarly hemorrhagic viruses that we see in in Africa and interested in how they spread silently. And I loved bubonic plague. (laughs) And I read about the Spanish flu of 1918 and cholera outbreaks and uh, just a host of different diseases that have swept through societies. So when I went to college at age 17, I was pre-med. And I majored in microbiology because that's where you learn about all those horrific diseases. I don't think I've ever heard the sentence, quote, I love bubonic plague, unquote, ever, ever stated before, on at least not on this radio station. Well, it's fascinating, right? I mean, public health disease control has shaped societies. It's shaped the world. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, you know, what's impacted societies and economies, it's it's been disease. And what's what's the biggest intervention public health has had? It's been vaccines. Um, and today, people tend to think it's something that is uh, the underbelly of society, that they don't have to worry about. Government's got that. If that risk ever arises, government will come and save us. But as local health officer, I figured out really quickly, uh, no one's coming to save you. And yet you have this enormous responsibility. And if you're really good at your job, nobody knows because that means right. you've prevented it. You've stopped the outbreak. Right. They find out when you mess up and, and a right. giant thing of MRSA spreads all over That's all over right. the county. So how did you work your way from Santa Barbara to state of California? Well, I was the local health officer in Santa Barbara over a number of different outbreaks, disasters. I was the health officer there during the Thomas Fire, which at the time was the largest fire in the history of California. It was a strange time of year. It was in December. And it was followed by a really powerful rainstorm that led to the Montecito mudslides. And as I was managing a number of different health risks around the mudslides, not just communicable disease, but a host of other things, I was in close close communication with a state health officer, Karen Smith, who was my person to call. You know, when you're a local health officer and you need backup, you need a thought partner, you call the state. So Karen and I spent a lot of time on the phone. And shortly after that, she called me one day and said, what would you think about moving up to Sacramento to be my number two? And I said yes, and uh, that's how the adventure started. And I had always thought that that's where I wanted to end up was being state health officer because I thought I could have you know an incredible amount of impact there at, at that level. But California has 40 million people, and California is really like its own nation. It's right. so diverse. So it, it made me nervous moving from making risk-based differential diagnoses on behalf of 450,000 people at the county to doing that at the state on behalf of 40 million people. So it was a different comfort level. Right. Stakes are higher. Stakes are higher. And, and mistakes are, are more costly. And But the same problem, if you succeed, nobody knows. It's always the challenge of public health because we succeed and then it's silent and you can't see that succeed in the data and statistics if you're not tracking outcomes. And traditionally, public health disease control does not have a good way to show return on investment. 
other than nothing bad has happened, our money must be well spent. But that's it's hard to prove a negative, isn't isn't it? It is hard. We can get to that later because I'll tell you why I'm so passionate about the private sector need for this and the mandate to show return on investment. So before we get to the private sector, and I have lots of questions for you about that, you were also the co-chair of the California Testing Task Force for COVID-19, and you ramped that up to over 100,000 tests a day in a very short period of time. Tell us about that. That sounds like a giant (laughs) logistical undertaking. It was. It was the greatest experience in rapid project management I've ever had. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention my amazing co-lead, which is Paul Markovich. He's the CEO and president of Blue Shield California. And what happened is there was no testing in California or anywhere else. The state was only able to do about 2,000 PCR tests a day. And the backstory, as you know, is the CDC and FDA had said nobody could test. Wait for the CDC's test. So we waited. They rolled it out. It didn't work. They said, wait, we'll fix it. So we waited. They rolled it out again. It didn't work. And so the United States missed that critical two-month window of containment. Without testing, there's no way you can contain a threat because you can't find it. So by the time they opened the floodgates that any microbiology lab could test, the problem was the labs weren't doing it. And we had supply chain issues where everyone needed the same testing supplies. And so we were asked, Paul and I were asked to found and stand up the testing task force to fix testing for California. And and tell us what you did, because California, at least in the beginning of the crisis, seemed to have done a much better job than a lot of other states, especially when you consider The outbreak was in Washington, not that far away from California, from Seattle, Washington. Yeah, well, I would say the outbreaks were invisible. Communities in California were burning up with COVID. It's just math and microbiology. I was whiteboarding it out, you know, at home on my whiteboard. I knew exactly how many cases I thought there were. The problem is we couldn't detect community spread without testing. And so Paul and I put together a plan. Essentially, I'd break it down in terms of supply and demand. Uh, We were doing 2,000 tests a day. Our objective was to get to 100,000 tests a day. We ended up blowing through that. We got to about 140,000 tests a day much sooner than we thought we would. And so the supply part is you need to actually have the testing. You need to have testing locations throughout the state. And the demand part is you need people to show up and get tested. And so we broke it down into project management. We had task forces and work streams, and we had daily stand-up meetings twice a day. It was 18 hours a day sprint you know, for about 12 weeks. And the way that we managed it was just getting really tactical and operational. Um, at one point, I rewrote California's guidance for who could be tested on a Friday night. And we published it on the website on a Sunday night. And it was far more aggressive than the CDC's guidance, but we needed people to show up to get tested. And the CDC's guidance was so restrictive, nobody could get tested. What was the CDC guidance? Because you would think if you're trying to stop an epidemic that could spread to anybody with a respiratory system, you would want to say, that's our our guideline. If you breathe air, you're eligible for testing. (laughs) That's, that's right. That's what it should have been. Uh, the CDC's guidance was very restrictive at that time. You had to have symptoms. You had to be in certain risk too categories. Late. Exactly. And so, so, you know, from a practical public health standpoint, the CDC's guidance was literally counterproductive to 
public health. And so looking at what we need to do, it, we have to test essential workers. Obviously, they're on the front lines. And so putting it in buckets that made more practical sense. Prioritizing. Yeah, prioritizing them is really what drove people into the testing centers. And so in, in parallel to that, we set up, over the course of two weeks, we stood up 80 testing centers across the state of California, wow. which is a big state. And then, of course, revise the guidance for folks to get tested, you know, started driving in people to those locations. And so that's how we scaled it up quickly. Yeah, I was kind of shocked in the early days of testing that if you were an NBA player, you could get tested. But if you were a, a grocery worker that's making right. deliveries into people's houses, that's and right. if you were literally going from place to place as a supercarrier, you couldn't get tested. It made no sense early days. That's right. It was bonkers. And that's why the United States failed at containment. You know, once you once you lose your chance to contain the threat, then you get to choose between something horrible and something even more horrible. Right. And that choice of, you know, massive outbreaks everywhere and bad health outcomes and the economy, I, I believe it's a false choice if you put all your energy at containing the threat in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And without testing and without an operational infrastructure to contain COVID, the U.S. had no shot. There was no effort to contain the pathogen in the beginning, which is why we're in the circumstance we are now. Let's talk a little bit about where we are today. You've seen the best and worst parts of the nation's medical system. What's your takeaway about how well we did how well should we have done, and, and where did we uh, go wrong? Sure. I would start off by saying the COVID-19 containment effort did not happen. So that was a massive failure. But it right. didn't happen because the United States of America does not have a systems capability to contain a fast-moving novel pathogen that emerges simultaneously at multiple locations in the U.S. Isn't that in the modern world how... I mean, we've seen Ebola in Africa where it's restricted, but there's no mass transit, aircraft, people hopping on a plane in one continent and eight hours later on a different continent. That's a very different world and economy. But in a modern interconnected economy, isn't that how things are going to pop up? There's going to be the first super yeah. spreader can seed a, a million people pretty quickly. Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, my master's degree is in tropical medicine, which really is an antiquated term. The diseases that we formerly thought were tropical now, thanks to globalization and, and to some degree uh, global warming, can move much faster. And so what we're seeing is that the pandemic pathogen spread has sped up. The, the risk is higher and those events are happening more and more frequently. All right. So now we know we didn't do a great job with containment. We did no job with containment. Um, what about creating the vaccines? We seem to have done a pretty good job with that. We did. The vaccines were a shining success. You know, I think what Operation Warp Speed accomplished, and full disclosure, um, those guys are my friends. Uh, they're Wolverines. And right. so, it, you know. From the, the book, from the Bush administration, <laughs> yeah. from the, Bush the group who essentially created the pandemic response. Someone else in the White House named them the Wolverines. Yep. I don't remember why. I, I think there's some... It was after a silly 1980s movie with Patrick Swayze. Red Dawn. Called Red Dawn. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> so I think it was Richard Hatchett that nicknamed them the Wolverines after this Red Dawn movie. And that was the name of our email chain. But listen, even if they're not your friends, even the most anti-Trump, 
hater in the world has to admit that was the most successful thing of the entire administration. A vaccine was not only was it created, it was safe, it was effective, and they made sure that there would be sufficient doses, at least uh, three quarters of the way, yep. made sure there were a ton of doses in the you know early days of the vaccination process. That's right. Operation Warp Speed to develop a vaccine as fast as they did is a shining success. And there are many lessons learned from that where we can get even better and faster. I think the other success is the private sector. What we saw during COVID and what I certainly saw leading California in the testing task force is the private sector ran to the fight. Right. They said, our resources are at your fingertips. How can we help you? You know, you look at different companies, whether it's, you know, the pharmaceutical companies that develop the vaccine or the testing companies that quickly develop rapid tests. The private sector played an incredible role. I think what's frustrating to me, you know, when I was in government was that there was really a struggle to leverage the private sector in the response, meaning up to this point, the response for public health was seen as government's role alone. Mm -hmm. That didn't work. It has to be a whole of society response. We have to have a place for individual citizen volunteers, for the private sector, so that the whole society responds together instead of government trying to piecemeal it on their own. So let's stick with the vaccinations. The numbers were going up enormously in different parts of the country. And then everything seems to have plateaued. We, we were going 3 million a day, 2 million a day. We seem to be getting close to national herd immunity. But when you break it down on a state and county basis, there are that whole super cluster between Georgia and Texas is, you know, 30 percent, 40 percent vaccination rates. You look at the Northeast, you look at parts of the West and, and the industrial uh, Midwest, are running well over 50%, some places 60 and mm -hmm. 70%. Mm -hmm. um, how do you evaluate the state of our, our vaccinated nation or not? You know, it's a shame that vaccinations have become so politicized uh, because it's really just science. It's microbiology and math. The equation for herd immunity is one minus one over R naught. Right. And the R naught is how many people will one contagious person infect? So the R0 of the original COVID virus was somewhere between 2.5 and 3. The R0 of the Delta variant mm -hmm. is somewhere between 5 and 8. That means one contagious person infects five or eight other people. So if the equation for herd immunity is 1 minus 1 over R0, what that means— It's exponential. It's, it's exponential. much, much higher. That's right. It means we actually now need a higher percentage of people who are immune in order to stop the spread of the Delta variant. So how big a threat— are these reluctant vaxxers or anti-vaxxers in that, you know, Texas to Georgia? It's about eight parts of eight states um, that really seem to be, when you look at a map of the country, that's the reddish, both politically and in terms of the lowest vaccination rate. Not a coincidence, but we'll hold that argument aside till later. How dangerous are these groups of unvaccinated people to themselves, to their friends and family, and to the rest of the country? Well, I think, you know, and I get asked this question a lot around vaccine hesitancy. And it's 
one of the oldest issues in public health. It actually goes really? back to Jacobson v. Massachusetts in 1905. The right of the individual to decline vaccination versus the protection of the herd, the good mm-hmm. of the whole. And we've dealt with this a lot in California. And I really understand vaccine hesitancy. And what I've told my friends and family who are hesitant to get the vaccine is, Stay out of my house. (laughs) No. uh, (laughs) You don't just get vaccinated to protect yourself. You get vaccinated for the people that you love and the people that they love and the people that they love. Because the situation, the reality is this. People have two choices. They can get vaccinated or they can get COVID. With a Delta variant that has an R-naught of five to eight, those are their two choices. You get vaccinated and protected or you are going to get COVID because this is spreading so rapidly. Hmm. That's quite horrifying. So what do you do with a person who basically says this whole thing is a hoax? 600,000 Americans didn't die. It's just like the flu. The president said that. It'll be gone like that. How do you respond to somebody who's been propagandized to that level? Yeah, I, I think it's a real challenge where politics and misinformation has unfortunately um, found its way into science messaging. The way, you know, I struggle with it when I have those conversations with people. What we know from public health uh, vaccine efforts in the past is that coming down with a hammer doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, It tends to. uh, Unless you're more literal than. (laughs) With an actual hammer? Coming down with a metaphorical hammer. Yeah, it doesn't work. I think (laughs) the carrot works better, which is explaining to people that. Protect grandma. That's right. Protect grandma. That's worked incredibly well in Mexico, which is a different set of cultural values that, than we have, where the message of protect grandma really, really works. Mm-hmm. In the United States, what we know works more is protect the vulnerable children around you, protect the vulnerable people around you. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's a hard conversation with people that are vaccine hesitant today. But they need to understand that Delta variant is spreading so quickly. And it's just the variant of the day. There will be additional variants right. that emerge. That's only the fourth letter. There's more coming. Exactly. You know, this. Uh, I trust the behavior of this virus far more than I trust the predictive behavior of people. Why? Pathogens do exactly what we know they'll do. I love studying pathogens. I love outbreaks. It's I love It's Darwinian competition, and they're going to get right. better and better at infecting their hosts because if they don't do that, there's a reason the Delta variant is dominant. It's pushed aside the previous variants. That's right. The, the virus is going to mutate, and it's going to spread, and it's going to mutate to spread. So, of course, we see a strain of the virus that spreads easier. It won't be the last strain. There, w- there will be more. It will continue to mutate. Hmm. That's quite amazing. And what about the chip that Bill Gates is putting in the vaccine to track me and my iPhone, which I always find (laughs) hilarious? They're concerned about being tracked, but this literally tracks everywhere you've been. How do you respond to that sort of stuff? You know, my my 14-year-old and 12-year-old every now and then will, will send me some videos that they see circulating online that have conspiracy theories. And I watch them. Because I want to understand why people are scared and hesitant. And I think it's important not to discount their fears. Mm -hmm. At this point in the pandemic, people don't know who to trust. And instead of discounting them, the more interesting conversation to me is, how might we, as one united country, build the kind of system, solution, and leadership that a whole of society would trust? 
even if they have different political beliefs, you know, red and blue, extreme sides of the aisle. So I think it's really a, a systems failure of government institutions in this pandemic response that we're at the point where people are so politicized that getting a vaccine or not, which is just pure science, is now made out to be full of conspiracy theories. Right. I, I saw a hilarious cartoon this weekend. If we would have had Fox News in the 50s, um, we'd still be fighting polio, which is kind of kind of amusing. Um, let's move past vaccine hesitancy and talk a little bit about where we are today, about whatever the next pandemic is going to be. Are we better equipped now than we were in 2019 to fight an upcoming pandemic? Or do we still have the same systemic problems that were revealed last year? We still have the same systemic problems. Look, the United States and companies and government have essentially duct taped together a response to COVID with individual vigilance and individual heroic efforts. But neither of those are an effective strategy in the long term for managing what we now know is an existential risk to the U.S. economy. And so if if a different pathogen threat were to occur today, we are no better prepared. And that's what I'm really focused on, again, not just for private sector or for government, but as a whole of society response. What are the system solutions for the country to contain a fast-moving novel pathogen that occurs simultaneously across the U.S.? And, and so what can we do? What should we be doing? Well, there's a number of approaches. Um, they certainly include um, intelligence, leveraging everything, all the technology that we have in Silicon Valley has not hit the public health system. And in disease control, largely the decisions and the operations are done manually or by individuals. I was the individual doing that. And so there's an incredible opportunity with Silicon Valley innovative technology to apply it to disease control. There's also the operational aspect of it, meaning looking at local public health health departments. They are the frontline generals. They're on the ground. You know, my job, as Michael describes in the book, was to control disease by all means necessary. So operationally as a country, I really think it's important that we rethink who's doing the frontline operations. Do they have enough resources? And do we have a way to quickly get centralized intelligence out to all those people? Right now, the way they share information is fax machines and emails and phone calls, and that cannot move as fast as the pathogen. Hmm. Well, I guess you can't fight pandemics in the 21st century with late 20th century technology. That's right. The pathogens are moving faster, and so we have to develop systems that can move even faster than the pathogens. You know what I was inspired by was um, watching Twitter and how fast rumors can spread on Twitter. Uh, in January 2020, that's where I was going to look for intelligence from Wuhan. Really? Yeah, I was watching you know, video feeds and information on social media, and I realized Twitter moves faster than the actual virus moves. Things I'm, go viral on Twitter faster than the virus goes viral. I'm going to confirm what you said because I have a vivid recollection of when Osama bin Laden was killed by the U.S. Special Forces. That first was revealed to the public by some local who was describing what was happening on wow. Twitter. It, wow. it, go back and, and recall, that was the first confirmation about helicopters, about an assault going on. And then subsequently, we, we 
you know, everybody else put the pieces together. But yeah, the speed of Twitter. Twitter is the new. Yeah. When they when they used to talk about in the stock market, the tape. Twitter's the new tape. It crosses Twitter before it crosses anything else. Yeah. You know, and even though it's oftentimes spreading misinformation, especially around things like vaccinations, um, and and that's you know something that we really need to address. The truth is, the speed at which information goes viral on Twitter is what gave me hope that Silicon Valley technology can revolutionize disease control to move faster than the pathogen, because that kind of technology exists. So let's talk a little bit about your new venture, the public health company. The mission is to protect business and communities from infectious disease. That's quite that's quite an aggressive mission, isn't it? Absolutely. And what inspired me leading the COVID response with amazing humans in California was that the private sector was experiencing what I had experienced as local health officer and as state health officer. And that is no one's coming to save you. When there's a disease outbreak, you have limited intelligence, sketchy information from scattered sources, but you have to make an operational plan. And not making a decision is a decision. In other words, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, and you've got to pick. And I was amazed how the private sector businesses ran to the fight. They wanted to do everything they could to help, but they did not have the tools. They didn't have a public health department inside of them. Some of them had duct taped one together and were really left having transferred the risk management of infectious disease to local and state government who were overwhelmed right. by the pandemic. And so by May or June of 2020, I couldn't stand it anymore. I knew what needed to happen. I knew that Silicon Valley technology could revolutionize infectious disease risk management and that the tools, the way that I thought about risk and the differential diagnosis and the operational plan, all of that could be revolutionized by tech. And why weren't we putting that into scalable software? And honestly, there was nothing else I could do with my life, you know, by by July, August, than to launch that effort. And so really our mission at the public health company is we are building those solutions in technology to democratize access to risk management of infectious disease so that private sector businesses, globally distributed enterprises that deal with infectious disease all the time, that they have that kind of expertise at their fingertips. So how is this set up? Is this going to be like a .org or and a philanthropic organization? Are you setting it up like a consulting firm? Or do you want this to become a scalable technology, an app that people can buy and use to manage their own um, prevention of infectious diseases? We are developing software. And as I looked at the very early applications we had developed, I got really excited because it had to do with genomic variants and how the virus mutates. And it's a concept called genomic epidemiology, or I affectionately also call it genomic weather mapping. You know how you can look at a weather map and you can see the weather forecast and what's coming by region? So we can actually do that for variants of the virus and say, how is the Delta variant different from the Alpha variant? And what does that mean for the state of Georgia or for a specific county? We can predict, you know, 
in a time-stamped way, the likelihood that cases are going to go up or down. And not just for COVID, but these are the kinds of models that every local disease controller has to do in their head, figuring out what's the direction of the meningococcal outbreak, for example. Michael Lewis tells that story in the book. So math and microbiology really is, you know, very simple data science modeling, codifying that into software and giving disease forecasting. And then the answer to the question, what do I do now based on it? Handing that to someone in a way that is simple, accessible at their fingertips is an incredible need and it doesn't exist. And it's for the private sector, it's for the public sector, it's for healthcare systems. We are creating something new, not just with the technology platform, but a new sector of someone that you can pick up the phone and call uh, when when there's an infectious disease threat. So what's the company going to look like in terms of a product? Will I be able to get an app on my phone and get alerts that, hey, the region where you are is now showing an uptick of infections and take steps to protect yourself? Or is it going to be more for the private corporate sector? Tell us what the product is going to look like. Sure. Well, I think the best way to explain it would be uh, the analogy of cybersecurity. You know, there were some really high profile cyber attacks in 2010, 2011. And after that, private enterprise realized, oh, this is a risk that we own. We own this potentially catastrophic uh, risk to our enterprise. And so we have to have that capability running in the background, monitoring the risk that can ramp up or ramp down. And so the quietly humming machine in the background of cybersecurity is a perfect analogy to what we're creating. Because really, as a as a tech-enabled service, we are scalable software, but we are humans behind it. I would argue the best humans in the world. You know, um, Carter Mesher and Joe DeRisi from the book are advisors to the company. I talk Mm -hmm. to those guys every day. We're codifying that thinking and those tools into scalable software in a way that we can help a business in an ongoing way manage the risk, the potential threats in all geographic regions, but then help them know how do what do we do practically, tactically, operationally for our business. Hmm. Quite intriguing. So you're for lack of a better word, your logo is Prevent, Detect, Contain. Explain uh, what those three words mean in terms of providing a shield for the private sector or the public sector against an infectious outbreak. Sure. So I would start with explaining it by the most important skill is index of suspicion. So for any doctor or for any frontline public health officer, having an index of suspicion means you've gathered data from all the sketchy sources, maybe which are somewhat unreliable, but taken together, it gives you a sense of the direction things are headed. So that's infectious disease modeling and certainly can be codified into software. So being able to look at disease forecasting and predict what the potential threats are, having a plan of action of how you're going to prevent that from happening, and then being able to detect it, you know, testing, uh, looking at the different capabilities we have from what we've seen in COVID is vast development of rapid tests. Uh, The rapid tests that have been developed by the private sector are incredible and are very, very good. And then containment. You know, like I mentioned before, uh, containment is where 
all the effort has to be for the government because the risk of failing at containment, as the United States did in 2020, means that then we have to make these awful choices, you know, that impact the economy and impact health. And so for our clients, both government and private businesses, really the the value proposition is the the ability to have disease forecasting, take action based on it, decrease your risk, and find that balance between continuity of operation and the health of your employees, the health of the community, and knowing that that brand has a safe environment. And from what I've read, this is more than just the germ of a startup idea. This is a real company that's funded, that has clients. Tell us a little bit about where you are in the growth curve of the public health company. Sure. Well, my archetype is a public health official, right? That's what I had been my whole career. And I jumped from being a health official of a state, the largest state, uh, to learning Silicon Valley in business and understanding the pain points of the private sector and of governments and of healthcare systems and architecting a technology-based solution. It has been an adventure. And what has happened is our partners in Silicon Valley have rallied behind the public health company. Mm -hmm. And our seed funding was in the spring. Uh, I'm thrilled to have partnered with Venrock. I was introduced to them by Todd Park, who's on our board of directors and was really a thought partner to me as I founded this company. And he introduced me to Venrock because they are uh, very thoughtful at the kind of partnerships that they have around tech-enabled services and healthcare IT companies. And so it's been an incredible growth curve for me and learning curve. And uh, we have about 20 employees right now at this point. Actually, as of recently, I believe the number is about up to 25. We are growing and scaling fast to build out these capabilities and software. And, And if memory serves, Venrock has been around for quite a while, haven't they? I believe since the 1960s. Right, one of the older Silicon Valley companies. Yeah, Yeah, they they were one of the first. And, you know, partnering with them has been incredible. For me, as a first-time founder and first-time CEO, I have a ton to learn. And doing that in partnership with someone who uh, is so well-versed in this and has a lot of experience has been incredible. And tell us a little bit, what is an index of suspicion? It it sounds so... uh, So clandestine, what is an index of suspicion? An index of suspicion is if you told me I have a 19-year-old college kid that has meningococcal disease and lives in a fraternity, my next thought is, well, I generally know how fraternity social behavior goes, (laughs) and I know there's probably a lot of cross-pollination, so I suspect there are, grab a whiteboard and a pen, 12 other cases currently that are undetected. And that immediately informs the action that I take. So an index of suspicion is having a strong situational awareness of the environment, knowing the pathogen and how it behaves, and then doing the math and microbiology to figure out very quickly what is the risk this is about to get really big. How contagious is this and how bad is the outcome for that disease? That's right. Huh, quite quite interesting. Uh, there's a quote from the book that I grabbed that I really liked, which was, quote, what scares me the most is our ability to respond to a new pathogen, maybe one we've never seen before, or an old pathogen like influenza that's mutated. We know we have to be prepared for that. Are we prepared for that? 
I do not believe that we are, and that's what motivated me to launch the public health company. Because unless we have a technology platform that can move faster than the pathogen, we will never be prepared. Hmm. Quite interesting and and frightening. So when you got the finished book, and then I want to circle back to how you met Michael, but when you got the finished book, what was it like reading about yourself? How surreal was that experience? You know, it was really painful because I'm a fairly private person. I've been a government official my whole career. And to see my life story in print in a book was shocking. And mm-hmm. it's also really hard to read about yourself in print. Huh. That's kind of interesting. So let's circle back to the beginning. How did Michael Lewis find you? You know, he texted me randomly out of the blue, and I had never read a Michael Lewis book. I recognized his name. I was going to say, I assume you kind of know who he is. Kind of. I recognized his name. I mainly knew who he was because my friend DJ Patil had told me about the fifth risk and that process of being Mm -hmm. in the fifth risk. And so. Wait, wait, let me just stop you here. Moneyball, the movies, Moneyball, The Blind Side, The Big Short. These were all pretty big movies. Certainly, The Big Short was a giant movie when it came out. No, not your cup. It didn't didn't catch your Well, The Big Short was not a giant movie for internal medicine microbiology docs. That's fair enough. So, you know, let's just say I I had seen The Blind Side, and Mm -hmm. I loved that movie. But I certainly didn't remember who wrote the book. Should I be saying this publicly? No, you could say that. I had never read a Michael Lewis book. I recognized his name mainly because DJ Patil had told me about his experience being in the fifth risk. But, you know, Michael texted me in, on that first phone call. I said, I'm happy to speak with you. I, I Googled him. On that first phone call, he said, who are you? And I said, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, the, the Wolverines and Red Dawn said to speak to Charity Dean. And um, he'd contacted DJ and Todd Park, and they said, talk to Charity Dean. And then Joe DeRisi at Biohub had said... He said, I've never heard of you. And I, I thought, well, okay. I've never heard of you. Yeah, <laughs> okay, that, that's fine. But it was a funny first conversation. In fact, it started off the first two minutes. I said, Michael, I know I don't know you, but I've got to make a fifty-one forty-nine decision. Have you ever had to make one of those? And he said, well, I'm making one right now. I'm deciding whether or not I'm going to write a book. And so we talked through the 51-49, meaning you have a 51% certainty, and how brave are you going to be? Are you going to pull the trigger? It's a coin flip, essentially. Yeah, so we talked through the decision I was making and the decision he was making. And, of course, what I didn't know at the time is I think by the end of the conversation, he had decided to write a book. Right. And I was going to be in it. And I, I had no clue, no clue about that. So what was the next step? So you, you finish the conversation, you leave thinking— Oh, so that seemed like an interesting guy. He leaves saying, oh, I'm writing this book now. Meanwhile, the way he operates, he's already been assembling. He's been collecting characters. He's been writing vignettes all year. He sees a thread that connects all of these together, and suddenly there's a full narrative. What was the next step with him? How did he he proceed from there with you and, and the rest of the characters in the book? Well, what I didn't know at that time, and he told me later, is before he even called me, he had an entire file with my name on it. Everything I'd ever done, anything that was out there publicly about me, 
And it, it makes a ton of sense because as he asked me questions and, you know, would, would come interview me and talk through how the public health system works or microbiology or my own story, um, he already knew the answer to some of that about me. And so I think I think he was getting to know a potential character. I was clueless when he asked if I would be willing to be a character in the book. Um, I thought I was one of 20. Maybe there'd be one or two lines right. from me. I never imagined I would be the protagonist. Not only are you the one of the key protagonists in the book, but the book begins with your story. That that was the surprise that you're the, the opening scene. It was a total surprise. I had no idea until I read the book, which was the day before I sat down with 60 Minutes. So I, <laughs> I, I had no clue. And, and yet I had made a decision in July of 2020 when he asked me to be a character in the book. I was either going to let him into my life or not. And I had been such a private person up to that point, but I don't have any secrets. It's a fairly vanilla life of a mom and a public servant. I'm, I'm going to throw a yellow card on that one, but we'll circle back to it. Okay. Because it clearly is not a vanilla life. <laughs> You're basically calling governors and saying, "Hey, idiot! If you don't do this, you're going to kill a lot of people. You need to you need to step up your game." That's not exactly dropping the kids off at soccer. Yeah, well, to me, you know, I took my oath of office very seriously to protect and defend the United States against all threats, foreign and domestic, and that includes pathogens. And so, for me, it was always just fulfilling the oath that I took to protect communities by all means necessary. Well, it's good to see that some people still honor their oath of office, but we won't digress into that direction. Let's stick with the book, which, by the way, is sitting on the credenza of my um, house where, uh, by the front door where I was going to bring it with me to have you sign, Aww. and I completely spaced. Well, that means that we have to see each other again. I'll okay. come back and Done. sign it. Sold. I was going to say after we open up again, but we're kind of opening up again. This, just to digress a little bit, not only is this the first time I'm in the Bloomberg building in a year and uh, almost a year and a half, today was my first uh, COVID test, rapid oh. response test. So, And how was it? I know. I'm here talking, so I assume they wouldn't have let me in the building without it. So you're having this conversation back and forth with him. Not only are, are you unaware of the fact that you're becoming the lead character in the book, but you're educating him on infectious disease. I know he's a quick learner and an in-depth learner, <laughs> yes. but tell us a little bit about what that back and forth was like. You know, it was it was really painful at times. Um, I basically spent a year teaching Michael Lewis microbiology and public health disease control, and I took him on a tour of the places where some of those stories took place in Santa Barbara. So I took him to the homeless shelter, uh, the coroner's office where the autopsy was done. Uh, Which, by the way, again, that's an insane – I hope that makes it into the movie if they make a movie. That's an insane scene in the book about you like, all right, you two idiots, stop fooling around – and out comes the knife, and you crack open the sternum and start pulling out internal organs. And the coroner and his assistant stood there horrified in the book. Was that an accurate depiction of what was going on? The way that Michael wrote it in the book was accurate. And what was funny about that scenario is I knew 
how risk-averse and hesitant uh, the pathologist was to cut open her chest because of the fear that using a bone saw could theoretically, there was one report in the literature, spread aerosolize right. the tuberculosis bacteria. Right. And so I understood the fear. But, but by the way, she's masked and has a, a full... Um, face shield right when i showed up everyone was wearing full ppe but i was the tuberculosis controller i was i had literally just been elected president of the california tuberculosis controllers association you never knew it existed i was going to say who even knew such a (laughs) thing but i was the president that must be those must be wild parties they are super fun because we talk about things like drug resistant tuberculosis treatment sounds like fun does sound like a blast so tb doesn't scare me you know it's it's so, all... so you show up and you're like, I'll crack her open. I don't care. Like they thought they were intimidating you by saying, you want those organs? You break her open. I think that they thought, and I should be careful here projecting what I think they thought, but I think my impression was if, it was, if, they, if I was going to issue a health officer order, which I had, then it would have to be done under their terms, mm-hmm. which was outside, and that I couldn't be absent and not only had to be present but had to be a very active participant Mm -hmm. and what they didn't know is i had started out as a surgeon i'd done surgery for you know some time in africa and i had been a general surgery resident at cottage i was super comfortable in the trauma bay cracking a chest open or you know making fast decisions and so what might have scared another doctor uh to me was just a okay so this is what we're doing today all right that rib shredder let's go yep now, it's really an amazing part of the book, and it sets the tone for who you are. It's like, you're not going to—you boys are not going to look down at me and intimidate me, because I know you show up, you're five-foot-nothing, blonde, and these guys think they're going to run roughshod over you. <laughs> is that is that your life experience? Uh, I should be careful what I say here. No, you the can say whatever is, you want. Tell you, Listen, yeah, your life is already spread out in Michael Lewis's book. That's true. And that's he true. implied— you know, I'm following his lead. He implied as much yeah. that historically you were very much underestimated by the boys club. And this was the perfect manifestation of that and the opportunity to say, hold my beer. Watch this. <laughs> you know, it's funny. So uh, for those of us not here in this studio, I'm five foot four. I'm a solid 115 pounds. Right. Solid, solid. solid. Long blonde hair. I always wear a suit and heels. And so I get that the way that I look projects a certain impression. And all my life, all my career, I've been in the house of medicine. The house of medicine feels like a fraternity at times. It's a boys club. Even in Unlike finance, school, which, you know, <laughs> so, so even, diverse. Even in medical school, you know, I went to med school at, at Tulane in New Orleans. Right. And, um, you know, the halls are lined with, with photos and portraits of, of men. And so as a woman, it feels like a very different game. And I figured out early on that in general, I was going to be assumed to be one type of person. And that's why I love trauma surgery. It's fast decisions. It's blood and guts. It's taking action. You're judged on what you actually do. And so I love that. So, yeah, Michael definitely locked onto that story as kind of an example, an archetypal example of what I had experienced throughout my career, and he wasn't wrong. To say the very least. So so let's talk about a couple of things um, from the book that I liked that I thought was really interesting and, and see if we can extrapolate forward to today. So I, I like the concept that 
Measuring hospitalizations and deaths are a bit like starlight. You're dealing with a phenomena that has taken place long before. Everything that you're seeing in terms of data is ancient because if someone's in the hospital today, it means they were infected 10, 14, 21 days ago. That's right. Or, or longer. What does this mean for con detecting and containing infectious outbreaks? And, and secondly, what does it mean when you have an entity like the CDC that all they want is more data, and the more data you get, the later you are in that containment curve? That's right. It's such a good point, which is basically, by design, a system or a thinker, a human, that can contain a fast-moving novel pathogen, by design, has to operate in the setting of uncertainty. Right. And the challenge with the CDC, and I include myself in this, local and state public health departments, is that they've been, or they, they were created under an architecture to reward being risk averse, to only act under certainty, to have a lot of data. The problem is, in an uncertain circumstance, right. not taking action is action. It means you lose your chance at containment. And, and a worse outcome if, if the numbers shake out that way. That's right. And so if you wait until you're certain, you've waited too long. You've lost your chance. And that's what we saw happen with COVID. There was no effort by CDC states, I would say locals, but there really was an effort by some locals to contain this when, when we had the chance. And the reason is that an institution that needs 99.9% .9 certainty by definition, it will be too late, right. too late to act. So so let's talk about states. What states got it right? What states got it wrong? Or if you want to be a little more circumspect, what were the actions taken that you thought were right? And what were some of the actions taken that had adverse outcomes? I don't even know how to answer that because we all got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Who got it less wrong? Who got it more wrong? I have tremendous respect for Governor Newsom in California. Every decision I saw him make was right. He wanted to understand the science. Mm -hmm. He wanted to understand the modeling. And he was brave and bold and leaned forward and led the country when he issued the stay-at-home order. What was hard about that is governors had a horrible choice where suddenly they were not being led at the federal level. Right. They were not given any tools to test. They were basically told, you're on your own. No one's coming to save you. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the way that California led the country, I absolutely believe was right. But I don't want to give anyone any more than a D minus in this response. Right. And that is a systems failure. In other words, like the humans got it right. The humans did exactly what they should have done with heroic efforts, but the system failed. The whole system failed. And so no matter how good a governor's leadership was or individual vigilance it was, it was going to be no match for this pathogen. What are your th thoughts on school closing, lockdowns? Because we, from what we've learned about the 1918 pandemic, that was very effective when you look at Pennsylvania and Philadelphia versus, um, was it Cincinnati was the comparable state where- St. Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis versus Philadelphia. Right. Yeah, it's that, my favorite That was really an interesting comparison. And when you actually run the numbers, the faster um, lockdown was much more effective at containment. 
That's right. And the reason why it was more effective is what you had pointed out earlier, that if you wait until you have deaths and hospitalizations, then you're too far behind. You haven't right. acted fast enough. So with the very first death or the very first case, you have to act quickly. So you asked what I think about schools. Well, what I love about having met Carter Mesher and Richard Hatchett is they did not tell me through the whole time we were on phone calls as, as Wolverines on the Red Dawn calls, they did not tell me that they had written the pandemic plan for the CDC under the Bush administration. They're so humble. But the premise of that is they had gone back and re-examined 1918 and discovered that the difference between St. Louis and Philadelphia was St. Louis locked down sooner and prevented a number of deaths and, and bad outcomes. And so schools play a huge role. You know, with COVID, children are less likely to show symptoms. This is opposite than a century ago, right? That was a... Uh... Well, the... So the pathogen is different in that the Spanish flu of 1918, not to get too wonky here, but the death curve looked like a W. Right. So very young, we're very affected, very, very young, old. Very young, but also 20 to 40-year-olds. Mm -hmm. So high spike in the children, high spike in 20 to 40-year-olds, and then high spike in the elderly. The difference with COVID is children are largely asymptomatic, but they absolutely still spread it. And so that was the logic behind closing down schools is – Children can spread it to each other. Uh, we did not have ample testing to detect that, and children can't be vaccinated right now. I think it's really important. You know, I have three kids, and I homeschooled them for a year during COVID while running the COVID response. It was hard. I think getting kids back to school is critical. Kids need to be back to school. What does that mean? All of us adults need to be vaccinated. Right. And tools like rapid tests and masking and decreasing the risk where we can, we need to implement that to make sure our kiddos can get back to school in the fall. M makes a lot of sense. Uh, what happened in cities where they caved to pressure from either business interests or political interests about reopening more quickly? What were the results of that? You mean now or in 1918? Both. <laughs> Well, that's the great St. Louis versus Philadelphia comparison from 1918. In Philadelphia, they moved forward and had their parade as planned uh, with thousands and thousands of people breathing and coughing on each other. And, you know, a few weeks later, it was a massacre of deaths in wow. Philadelphia. And what we're about to see in the United States is what Carter Mesher calls a tale of two Americas. And I agree, meaning in communities that are under vaccinated, the Delta variant is going to move very fast. Remember, restrictions have been lifted. A lot right. of people are not masking. Congregate gatherings are taking place. And so we're about to see two Americas, vaccinated America versus unvaccinated America. And I'm very, very concerned about the Delta variant causing, wreaking havoc in unvaccinated regions. Hmm. Quite quite shocking. So, so like so many other uh, of Michael Lewis's book, this book like looks like it's heading... Uh, to be made as a major motion picture. If you could pick somebody to play you in the film, assuming they make a film, who would you pick? Because I have a couple actresses I would I would think about, like Natalie Portman or Claire Danes, or there's a handful of people I think could take your role. Um, <laughs> Julia Roberts already did Erin Brockovich, so she's off the table. Who would you pick to play yourself? I am neutral. I right. don't have an opinion. Reese Witherspoon. That could be a good actress for you. What I told Universal Studios is I offer my support and help if I can be helpful to you anyway. And I I want to just be supportive. They are the artists. This is what they do. They're right. really good at it. 
I'm a nerdy public health doctor, so I think I'll let Hollywood do what it does best. Come on, you know, you, there has to be someone you think would do a good job playing you. I'm neutral. All right, I'll so be let supportive. me. So I'm going to throw a different curveball at you. That's movie related. Let's talk a little bit about Star Wars. Oh, let's talk about Star I'm, Wars. That's my see, favorite. See, that's topic. the reaction I was yeah. looking for. So I have to assume you've been watching The Mandalorian, right? I did. Have you watched any of the other? Animated features on Disney like Rebels. No, or... I can't bring myself to do it because some I'm, of them are really good. I'm a Star Wars purist, so I watch The Mandalorian because my my I have three boys. They're ten, yeah. twelve, and fourteen, and they begged me and convinced me to watch The Mandalorian. It was great. It was good, but it's not a Star Wars. So the reason I love Star Wars is I first got interested in the hero's journey by Joseph Campbell. A man of a thousand faces. That's and right. Blah, 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 and right. when I discovered that Joseph Campbell had been a thought partner in designing Star Wars to be the classic hero's journey, right. that's why I fell in love with Star Wars. So I haven't been able to watch any of the spinoffs. Yeah, but you watched. All right. So if um, you watched, uh, obviously, we all started with Star Wars and then Empire and then Jedi. But then, you know, the the episode, the first couple sort of went off the rails after that and it was only what? the most recent you want to talk about Jar Jar Banks that's how, how? scandalous I so I love the pod race scene in episode one with Anakin as a little kiddo that okay. is one of my all-time favorite Star that's Wars a good scenes. scene in a not great particular I love episode that movie the series so I'll tell the you most what, recent few have been a huge oh, improvement over the previous yeah, few they're fantastic and what I love about um you know, the first three. So if you look at Anakin Skywalker, Luke Skywalker, and certainly Ray, all of them are orphans in the desert right. who don't know who their family of origin is and they don't know what their calling is. And I think that resonates with every human, you know, groping our way in the darkness to figure out who am I and what am I supposed to do on Earth? I, I love how animated this this makes you. I can't get you off the fence on who should play you. Reese Witherspoon, give me a call. But Star Wars, and you're just suddenly... Uh, yeah. So, so I only have you for a few more minutes. Let me jump to my favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. And speaking of, of Star Wars, tell us what you're streaming. What are you, what are you and the boys watching during lockdown on Netflix or Amazon Prime besides The Mandalorian? Oh, I... I... Nothing. Nothing. Um, that's not the answer you want. No, I don't. I'm just curious. It, it's okay, always so a. You want the always, real answer? Yeah. It listen. It's always a curiosity okay. when you find out that someone yeah. who studies infectious disease loves Star Wars. It, that sort of stuff is so. A, honestly, during lockdown, like your boys are not watching The Crown. I'm no, assuming. they're not watching The Crown. The question over dinner is which Star Wars episode are we going to watch? But you don't watch. It's been a year. You're not watching a different Star Wars every night. Episode seven about fifty six times to the point that my kids say over dinner, "Mom, it's not episode seven. We're not watching that again." And so we we do watch Star Wars a, a lot. lot. That's frightening. Yeah. Um. All right. So let me let me go on to the next. <laughs> Sorry, that was got to be. Wasn't so, what but you it's wanted. Star Wars or well, no, it's we watched the Mandalorian. Okay. Oh, we watched Stranger Things. We repeated okay. um, season one of Stranger Things because right. it's so good. We love right. Stranger Things. Um, I think that's it. Th- that we pretty much were pretty. We stick to the same stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Um, 
this I'm going to make a recommendation for you, but I'm drawing a blank on the name now, which is pretty awful. And I'll I'll circle back. With I that. also make them watch any movies about Altered Wins- Carbon. Did you see Altered Carbon? Altered Carbon, no. It, it could be the best sci-fi series I've seen this year, okay. and that includes. Well, the boys might be a little too gross and violent for you. I don't know if that. Uh, Oh, we don't mind gross and violent. Oh, I generally, really? I generally well, the, avoid you know certain other categories, but gross and violent is fine. Well, there's some sexual stuff in it, but it's mostly just what happens if superheroes are corrupt corporate players. Oh, is the theme on that? It's, it's from a graphic novel, and if 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 the boys is a little too grisly for you, Umbrella Academy was really interesting, and the same orphan theme runs through that as as Star Wars, which was kind of interesting. There's a ton of really interesting sci-fi that have come out. But Altered Carbon, it's two seasons, and it's okay. just... Uh, everybody I've recommended that to has come back and said five stars. It's just so good. Okay. So, And I'm a Star Wars fan, so I, I'm going to tell you, if I'm going to make one wreck, that, that's the one. Let's talk about your career a little bit. Who were some of your mentors that helped shape and guide your career? When I was at Tulane, I decided I wanted to do trauma surgery because I was working with Norm McSwain. And Dr. Norm McSwain was a famous trauma surgeon at Tulane, and I absolutely adored him. And even though my path ended up twisting and turning into public health disease control, the way that I think about taking fast action, you know, cut the patient open, uh, a lot of it goes back to Norm McSwain. The other mentor was Dr. Steve Jose, who is an infectious disease doctor that Michael Lewis talked about in the book. And he trained me how to think about infectious disease. And so it was really the combination of, you know, the fast scalpel of a trauma surgeon with the critical risk management of an infectious disease doctor that shaped how I manage outbreaks. Hmm. Very interesting. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorite books and what are you reading right now? Sure. Well, I'm reading a book by Ben Horowitz called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love it. You know, I'm a new CEO and I'm learning and I'm learning fast. And so that book has really influenced my thinking around making hard decisions and doing them sooner. Uh, And I, let's see, what podcast am I listening to? Oh, the podcast I'm listening to is by Reed Hoffman, Masters of Scale. Sure. He interviews really interesting business leaders. I actually met him last week for the first time. And so the Reed Hoffman podcast is really helpful to me to hear from other startup CEOs who ended up being very successful. What were their challenges and strategies in the very beginning? I'm trying to remember the name of Ben Horowitz's colleague, Scott Kapoor, who's general counsel at um, Andreessen Horowitz wrote a book on the secret to Silicon Valley of the secret of venture capital. And it's really just a very smart, basic how-to. Here's what you should know if you're setting up a company, if you're taking outside financing. And it's just written from someone from the inside. So if you like Ben's book, yeah. his colleague Scott's book is really in- oh, wor- that's worth, good uh, to know. Okay. worth interesting. I've, I've kind of worked my way through um, half the A16Z crew. They're, uh, they're really interesting guys. Um, next question. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was interested in a career in either public health or infectious disease? I would ask them what they really want to do because if what they really want to do is change the world 
or protect communities, then they need to think hard about what their career path is. Because becoming a medical doctor, you know, my path was I went to medical school at the same time in parallel doing a master's in public health and tropical medicine, then did general surgery, then did internal medicine. It is many, many years. And I would tell them to think long and hard about what's the end game? What are they hoping to do? Because public health and medicine is not the only path to accomplishing what what they want to. Uh, I think people tend to think, oh, I need to become a doctor and or get a PhD in public health to make a difference. But there's lots of ways to make a difference that are not as long of a path. Hmm. Interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of public health today that you wish you knew 25 or so years ago when you were first getting started? Sure. Well, I'm 43 years old, so 25 or so years ago would put me at, what, 18? 20, let's call it 23 years ago, though. So when okay. you were first thinking about public health and, and what, what insight do you have today might have helped you um, when you were just getting out of medical school? I wish I'd known that I was just as smart, that a poor kid from rural California, or I'm sorry, a poor kid from rural Oregon that grew up on government assistance with parents that didn't have college degrees could not only be just as successful, but could absolutely lead a public health department or lead an entire state. I didn't know that then. I was very intimidated by my classmates who came from wealthy families and Ivy League colleges, and I didn't. And that imposter syndrome has plagued me my whole career, and I still struggle with it. And today, you know, COVID response is such a great example where what really matters is how brave someone is and how committed they are and how much they persevere, not necessarily the privilege or their family of origin. But when you're 23 years old, you don't know that yet. That's quite interesting. Thank you, Charity, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Charity Dean. She is the co-founder of the Public Health Company, as well as the protagonist of Michael Lewis's new book, uh, The Premonition. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous uh, 350 or so such podcasts that we've done over the past seven years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever finer podcasts are found. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together each week. Paris Wald is my producer. Charlie Voldner is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.